Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Hope everybody is doing good and that good things are happening in your life. Today, we will be talking about a new type of COVID vaccine in the works, essentially a vaccine you can drink. Although, as we'll hear in the podcast, the vaccine-making platform could be applied to other viruses. Now, I think exploring this type of thing is neat, especially when smaller companies are doing it and hoping to give the Goliath companies with all the money and power some competition. Although, real quick here, I just have to say this because we're talking about vaccines today. It's unfortunate today that discussing vaccines, particularly anything related to COVID, has become such a polarizing topic, right? Everything has been reduced to two sides, bad versus good, quacks versus shills, quack, shill, quack, shill, to the point that it sounds like an Audubon Society birdwatching trip, right? Shout out to my fellow nerds. Um, <laughs> there's very little investment in trying to understand where each other is coming from. People are just into throwing dirt at each other with their cyber shovels. And, you know, there are legitimate concerns about vaccines and people might express those concerns in different ways. Some more eloquent than others. But, but public health is dealing with the entire population, not just people who think like you. Uh, and there are lots of people with different backgrounds, religions, politics, and views, and I don't think we do a good job of connecting with them and addressing those concerns in an empathic, productive way. Now, I'm cool with having conversations with anyone. <laughs> it has gotten me in trouble, but my approach with scientific communications and in life is to try to find a common ground, like a hill we can unite on, not die on. I'll tell you a quick story before the interview. Recently, a woman I really like, she's cool, she told me she identifies as an anti-vaxxer and she believes all vaccines are unnecessary and doesn't see the benefit of them. And I said, really, all vaccines? And she's like, all of them. Now, that's an extreme position and it's not one I take. And sometimes, no matter what the topic is, it's hard to have conversations with people when they take extreme positions. But you can always try. You might fail, but you can always try. So I asked her if she's ever watched the movie Old Yeller. It's the movie where the beautiful happy dog, a yellow lab mix, has to defend the family against a rabid wolf. But what happens is the dog gets bitten by the wolf, gets rabies, and then the family has to shoot the dog. Now, nobody likes it when a dog dies in a movie, but Old Yeller Man takes it to another level. And I mean, you can't watch it without crying your eyes out. So I said, so the woman said, yeah, I've seen it. And I said, okay, okay. You can't possibly watch that ending and tell me you deny that dog a rabies vaccine. And she thought about it, I thought about it. And you know, well, what ended up happening is we had a conversation. Anyhow, on to the topic of the day. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Kyle Flanagan, CEO and co-founder of US Specialty Formulations, his company has a platform that makes oral vaccines or vaccines you can swallow. They are working on one for COVID-19. So in this episode, he's gonna talk more about that and how they're making the vaccine and the differences between an oral vaccine versus a shot in the arm. You know, are there benefits for this type of vaccine versus traditional ones we are used to? He'll walk us through how they are testing the vaccine, safety concerns, and any results he can share with us publicly. 
So give me a second here, gang, while I connect to Dr. Flanagan. All right, well, we're here with Dr. Kyle Flanagan. I actually came across an article about um, Kinder, the vaccine that you're working on, um, or Q-Y-N-D-R. That, that's the, the acronym, right? Correct. Uh, okay. And um, I thought it was so interesting. You know, it's about these oral vaccines, and we're all talking about vaccines today. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about that. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in vaccine development? Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so, you know, I'm actually a transplant from another industry, the semiconductor industry. And, and there, you know, for many, many years, you know, I worked on uh, in clean rooms and developing, you know, new materials, you know, we call it cradle to the grave. So new materials used in, in manufacturing semiconductors, um, which are, you know, some of the most advanced materials you'll ever come across. Um, and so that's kind of what took what took me down the path of 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 uh, manufacturing technical development and, and and science development after after my graduate studies, and then um, you know from there I went into as as I progressed through those ranks I, I went into more of the um, business uh, the technical business side and, and business management eventually. Uh, and I left my my previous company, uh, Mallon Crad Baker, and um, in between different um, different you know look while looking, I, I said, hey, you know, there's I want to do something else. And I, I met my co-founder at a gymnastics meet, and we were sitting in our stands, you know, watching our daughters perform. Uh, we just kind of started talking about various various things on on processing. He's you know in the vaccine development world. Um, and, you know, he shared his roadmap and his ideas with what we were, where he wanted to go. And I said, hey, I think I can help. I can help with that. So, you know, we spent many months talking about things. And in 2013, we founded uh, U.S. Specialty Formulations. And what U.S. Specialty Formulations is, is a, um, was originally designed to produce clinical materials for, for him and his vaccine program. But we realized that the rest of the, the world, the rest of the country, um, actually companies similar to his, smaller biotech companies that were developing things, didn't really have a good outlet for, uh, for, for where they could get clinical materials, you know, that are high quality, but they're not paying ex very, you know, the very high prices that it takes to, to, to work with some of the larger uh, uh manufacturers that are out there, uh, contract manufacturers that are out there. Because when you think, if you think about the vaccine development process, um, you know, you're initially, you're making small quantities of materials. So you don't need a lot of, of vials of something, but they still have to be, you know, clean, sterile, and of high quality. So um, when you look at a, um, you know, when you do the the economics of that it doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't really support high volume manufacturing sure, sure um so that's really what that's how ussf started and now what ussf is is we are actually a uh we're a kind of a hybrid we provide clinical materials uh to investigators who are working on small molecule things um as well as to you know in the in the on the vaccine side uh and we also 
perform, um, manufacture some of our own um, products that are out out in the market uh, under contract for other people. So um, we provide a whole range of, of we'll say clinical clinical contract manufacturing services for sterile materials. Okay, and you guys are based in Pennsylvania? Yeah, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. I'm from, um, I grew up near Scranton, like a little, well, Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area. Okay, yep, yeah. we're familiar with that. We yeah. And my sister passed there on our way to the Finger Lakes. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, <laughs> my sister's a physician in um, Easton. I, I think she works with like St. Luke's Hospital. Yep. yep. Yeah, down there, yeah. Um, it's great, so... It's funny when you said you met at a gymnastics meet, I was like, oh, I didn't know you did gymnastics. So then you said, it's <laughs> like, that's very, <laughs> but yeah, your daughters so, did. <laughs> yeah, my daughters did. So besides going to gymnastics meet, I guess, um, like I'm a, you know, so for me, what I love doing is I'm a pilot. I love uh, really? anything space or science. Yeah, I love anything aviation related. Um, I was always joking, like maybe we should set the, set you know, get into the distribution side and, and we could do drone drops for our, uh, for our problem. But yeah. Oh, so you're a pilot direction. too? Yes. Yes. Wow. It's, I love the freedom, the, the ability to just go and explore. I love assembling things, but really the ability to go and explore, see new things. Yeah. You know, go fast. Yeah. Um, Very That cool. kind of stuff. It, it's, it's just, it's really amazing. In grad school, I used to like to fly just to go visit. You know, my goal yeah. was to hit every new airport or every airport in Oregon, put my wheels on the runway if I could, if I could, could do it. I didn't quite hit that goal. There's a lot of airports in Oregon, but <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, really cool. Wow. Um, all right. Um, okay. We're back, back to vaccines. Here we go. Sorry about that. <laughs> No, no, that's cool. Um, I, I like uh, it's neat flying. I, I have like flight anxiety, so I don't know how good I would be like learning how to fly a plane. But I feel like if I learned, I probably would not have as much flight anxiety. Probably would. You'd be, feel a lot more in control when you're yes. flying. Yes. A lot of pilots when they're riding commercial in the back uh, have anxiety because they're not in control. So <laughs> interesting. Okay. So it has to go, maybe it has to go more, more to do with control. I think you're right. right. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about kinder the, the vaccine that you guys are working on, but I wanted to kind of touch on the basics first for folks who may not know. Um, you know, we know we're all familiar with the, the shot in the arm. That's what we think of when we think of vaccines. Uh, but this is an oral vaccine or a mucosal vaccine, something you can swallow. Can, can you tell us more about that and maybe the differences between, you know, that the type of vaccine you're working on and the shot in the arm vaccine? Right. So the, the more conventional vaccines, you know, are the ones you, you get a shot in the arm and it puts in, you know, the vaccine is administered to you. You've been vaccinated at, at that point. And what happens is you get um, the vaccine works by generating antibodies, and a lot of those those antibodies, your body produces antibodies and distributes them throughout your throughout your body. Um, and we call those the serum-based vaccines. So most of the vaccine's action is in your your blood, your bloodstream. But it also you also have antibodies in your um, eyes, nose, throat, and we call those your mucosal system. 
um, you know, anywhere there's mucus. So your body has a lot of defenses within that that system that it that it can utilize. And one of the, the schools of thought in, in amongst the community, we're we're learning um, a lot more data is out there now that these mucosal systems provide a lot of provide kind of your first defense, your first line of protection against invaders coming in. Um, but historically, um, serum type vaccines um, have been kind of the preferred mode that a lot of the, the development has been, has been based on. Mucosal vaccines are a lot harder, um, they're a lot more challenging because there's a lot more kind of, it's a lot, it's a little more, more difficult and the science isn't up to where it is for your bloods, for your blood systems to be able to tease out the data that's in your your uh, mucosal system. So you you it's challenging because there's a lot fewer antibodies and things in there that you're looking for. So you really need some really precise science to be able to do the development associated with that, with a mucosal system. Mucosal system, so oral vaccines, if you, everyone remembers the polio vaccine, um, you know, from a long time ago, it used to originally in, in the United States, it was an oral uh, vaccine. And, and that was that's probably the most famous one that everyone knows about. So when we say oral vaccines, we're speaking about a vaccine that you swallow rather than inject. And in our or you can or it can come in and be administered um, through your nasal. And I think a lot of there's been a lot of press on nasal based uh, vaccines inhale. So you inhale yeah. the vaccine or you shoot it in your nose, um, that's that's a type of, of mucosal vaccine. Um, you also have the a couple of other types of vaccines that are tablets or pills that you swallow. Um, and those, ours is more similar to that in that you, you ingest our vaccine uh, and it begins to operate that way. What's slightly different about ours or what kind of separates it apart is ours is is a uh, protein subunit. So meaning we're just taking, we're not taking a live, a live virus or an attenuated virus or a viral vector. So it's just a part of the part of a protein. And that part of the protein is used, uh, we used to teach your immune system to recognize uh, certain parts of the, the virus that we're, we're targeting. And that, so that's how the, our, vaccine works. And that's kind of what separates it from the serum-based vaccines or other oral vaccines or like ingestible vaccines that you, that people may have heard of. Okay. And, and we, I mean, I know we do have some of the, the subunit, protein subunit vaccines for the serum, right? Like those, there's a couple of those. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, the more conventional ones. So typically, you know, the ones that were approved are the mRNA vaccines. Yes. Yes. Um, but the most conventional uh, vaccines are serum based vaccines are protein subunit vaccines. Okay. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's been the industry standard uh, for, for quite some time. Okay. Okay. So this is the, the real difference here is uh, mucosal versus serum blood. Correct. Okay. Correct. okay. Well, I guess it would be an ingestible Right. And you know, the real difference it's ingestible yeah. and it's ingestible. a it's a protein subunit. And and why that's special is 
you know, your stomach is designed, your your digestive system is designed to take in proteins and chop them up and render them, <laughs> render them to their components yes. so that you can, can absorb them. Yes. So it's really challenging to for any design for anyone who designs vaccines to to get an intact vaccine. We call them vaccine particle okay. through your digestive system and in in into a location where it can can begin to train your immune system. And, and that was actually a question I had down the line. So um, we can I can ask it now. It makes sense, makes more sense to ask it now. Um, you have to create a vaccine that gets past the digestive system. Yes. And you guys did that. Yes, and and that actually, you know, I'd love to take all the credit for it, but you know, that's really uh, my co-founder's uh, specialty. So he was working on this for about, um, let's see, so for about six years before we started up. So, um, you know, we started in 2013. He had been working on some some technology similar to this for, for quite some time. And we were going to, we were looking, um, we, were, we were getting ready to go for a clinical trial for a different uh, vaccine target and COVID hit. So we decided that we could, we could pivot the technology into and apply it to, to COVID. Um, so we, you know, batched up our subunits and were able to create this oral formulation. And, and what's special about it is, is we have the ability to have the, the antigen on it. So the, the, the protein that targets, that teaches your immune system, trains your immune system. But we also are able to put um, certain targeting molecules into this vaccine particle that allow it to, to reach your immune cells in your digestive system. So, and then we put a coating on that. So that whole thing is what we call the vaccine particle. And we've been able to show that that with that, that particle is what allows you to ingest this, ingest the, the vaccine and for it to make it through your system and then very specifically train your your immune system to produce the antibodies of the desired type. Um, in the past, a lot of people were just trying to over, we'll say, overwhelm your digestive system by just putting a lot of vaccine in, and you know, hope that some of it made it through. Um, that that was the most common method for for people, you know, trying to to have ingestible um, vaccines. But this is a lot more elegant and requires a lot less of the what we consider the active. Um, to achieve the same results. Very interesting. So now, and um, you mentioned that you were working on a vaccine, and um, from what when I you were working on the DTaP for, for diphtheria, right? That that was that was one of the vaccines that we were using to um, to kind of showcase the the technology. We're using we're using that to demonstrate its the technology's capabilities. The vaccine we were originally. Um, trying to to work on is uh, group A strep, which is also the news right now. We were we were working on it for oh. several years ago. So oh wow okay uh, it's fortuitous that it happens to show up now. But um well not you know it's right, and I know for us you. it's fortuitous sure. not for other people. Yes. Um but yeah the DTAP so with that what we were doing one of the benefits of the technology is that it's able to ex to extend the life or restore functionality to to 
older vaccines that have expired. So what we've been able to do and, and what we have data for showing it, and DTaP was one of the examples that we used for this, was using an expired vaccine, we were able to run it through our, our the, the process and, 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 and the technology, administer it to test subjects, and, and show that this expired vaccine was able to generate, had the same efficacy as the fresh vaccine um, that hadn't been through our process. So we were able to show that we can actually extend the, the longevity or we call it stability of, of already formulated vaccines. And where this is important is when you think about the mRNA vaccines, they have a very, you know, it's challenging. They have a, a challenging distribution network because they have to be stored cold. And that cold chain network, you know, originally required minus 80 freezers, you know, minus 20 freezers. Um, those are hard to transport. There's, and there's not a lot of institutions other than research institutions that have those kinds of capability. So when you think about getting this out through a distribution channel, that is extremely challenging. And, and it's, it's a vital importance for a lot of uh, vaccine programs now to try to stabilize their mRNA-based vaccines. And our one of the one of the benefits of our technology is that it it does allow us to some ability to stabilize you know to stabilize you know other vaccines. So, for instance, this mRNA mRNA vaccines, but probably also you know. Pro, other protein vaccines that, that have needed cold um, storage. Um, one of the nice things about our oral vaccine, I'm just trying to give the readers more, more of a, yeah. a, a view of it, is it's actually stable up to like 60 degrees, um, 60 degrees C. So in F, that's, you know, 140, 143 degrees F. So if you picture you wanted to, you know, to distribute this to people who are, out hiking in the in the mountains or in a desert or they just aren't anywhere close to a pharmacy or a hospital that has cold storage you could load this into a back of a truck into the back of a helicopter and or you know onto a ship and and take it to wherever it has to go without worrying about these you know huge excessive um, temperature changes that would that would you know render a normal vaccine inert um, or at least diminish its functionality, right? And and that's one of the nice things about uh, about the formulation that we were able to develop. You know, not only is it oral, but it's also really cool because it allows you to access so many more people um, that don't have access to cold to cold chain uh, distribution systems. And that's right. that's a lot of people in the world. A lot of people, right, right, right. So in terms of scalability, that would be a a, a huge advantage. Um, I just wanted to circle back to to make sure I understand. Them. So you mentioned that uh, you can take an older vaccine and uh, run it through your technology or put it through your platform and extend its shelf life, so to speak. Um, and did you mention that you might be able to do that with the current mRNA vaccines too? Yes. So okay. we okay. have a pro. Yeah, we do. We have a program now. Um, with our sister company, where we're looking at how do we use this technology um, to extend to extend those to stay, we call it stabilize those vaccines, so they don't need to go through um, um, 
don't need a cold chain uh, distribution uh, network. I think a lot of, you know, there's been a, a lot of effort on mRNA vaccines and, and they're a lot of, uh, a lot more programs are showing up that are basing, um, that are using that as the basis of their technology, but it is a constant uh, drawback for use of those vaccines in, in that they do require uh, some cold chain, you know, a cold chain um, for the for the best stability uh, profile. Um, so it's it's of extreme importance if if we can to be able to apply this technology to to help stabilize them. Right, because you know, sure. right, and, and that. So what that means is that for other targets, not necessarily COVID or, or right. certain ones, but other targets that, that are out there, they could apply this technology. Right, right. And I think, too, when we were, you know, there's a lot of conversations around vaccine equity and like, you know, like the U.S. had a ton of mRNA vaccines, but then in other countries, they were they would always talk about the, the necessity of this, you know, cold, the freezers that they would need. Um, and it just didn't seem, didn't seem very easy to do. No, that was, we, we call it, it's kind of like a cost of ownership for the vaccine, mm. um, for vaccines. We we looked at those, um, and that was as we were developing kind of the platform, that was one of the, the key things we kept, we kept thinking about while we were working on the formulation was, you know, we want a vaccine that can be used um, globally, right? Not just for, you know, the 2 billion people one and a half in 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 um, what we'll call the the top economic developed countries, but we want to make sure that the other you know six billion people who live maybe in the mountains at the you know in some very arid regions could also have access to to a very high quality vaccine um, that's efficacious despite its the route that it takes to get there. If you look at you know how vaccines are distributed kind of globally yes a lot of them are given you know brought in on a on a refrigerated truck and and are put in a cooler and they're brought out by the pharmacist you know an hour before before use to kind of get it up to room temperature or 30 minutes before use um that's one way but the vast majority of things are transported you know by motors on the back of a motorcycle in a taped up cooler um right yeah you, you know, and, yeah, you know, yeah. it might sit on a truck for a day or two days, you mm-hmm. know, parked at a border crossing somewhere. Who knows, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And and so by the time the vaccine makes it to to a lot of the people, it may not be perhaps in the best shape. Right. Um, right. So how long did it take you? You know, when you sort of transitioned to okay, COVID hit, we're going to try to make an oral vaccine for for COVID. How long did it take you to come up with something that you could test, uh, you know, in a phase one or early stage clinical trial? Right. So actually, I it's, a, it's kind of a source of pride for 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 me towards my team because I, I think I always comment to the to to the teams, uh, you know, that we were able to accomplish what what some of the larger companies with thousands of people working on it were able to accomplish in, in you know a little bit longer time but it took about uh 12 months to get to a uh a material that we considered um c- clinical materials for our clinical trial 
Um, you know, you know, just to remind you, we already we already are a a, C, a GMP manufacturer, so a lot of our systems and things like that were were already in place. So we weren't building something from scratch. Um, but it did take some work to get the formulation, the protein purification um, worked out. Um, and then we had to develop some of the analytical tests associated with it um, for this particular protein and and uh, and refine the purification process. Um, after that, the manufacturing was fairly straightforward um, based on you know just knowledge we already had. Um, and really, it was just making sure that everything was done in a in a GMP manner. So that we would have valid, um, valid clinical, you know, we we had valid clinical results and, and could could use it in any any upcoming filings or support for 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 moving on to the phase two and phase three. So I would say it took us about about twelve months um, working really hard to to get things out. Twelve months, okay. And and can you just tell people what GMP means for folks who may not know? Oh, um, so someone say yeah, good manufacturing. Um, processes. So these are things, it's primarily um, ensuring that our processes are well documented and well characterized and uh, and validated. That's that's a lot of around a lot of what it is what it is. Um, there's some making sure that our staff and our operators are well trained and and have certain you know procedures in place for everything that we we pretty much do. It's a lot, a lot of paperwork. <laughs> a lot of paper. Okay. Okay. Um, I just, I just want to want to make sure everyone understands all the acronyms and that kind of thing. Um, cause as oh, yeah, we, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. Cause as we were saying before, I don't know if I hit the record button yet, but you know, there's just at least as much as we can lift up the curtain of this process so people can kind of understand it a little better. Um, right. I, so I, and I can walk through that. So, you know, oh, the, go ahead. The key thing before a vaccine actually can get even to, to people, in, in, and this is this is looking at it from a U.S. regulatory perspective, um, you know, other countries may may have different things, but in general, we we have different phases of the development. So there's the basic research, right, and that's where you 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 identify, okay, this is the this is the mechanism, this is the protein we want to make, um, and then when, once you do that, you have to you know say, okay, is this thing going to work or not? So then we we go through what's called the preclinical. So that's where we in the lab we make up you know this this material and we test it in a variety of different environments. Um, you know we might have to do depending on what it is you're working on you might have to do um, non-human testing um, just to make sure it's it's safe. And then there are some some things that are changing around that. But there you have that's called all the preclinical work, and you take that data, um, and once you take that data, and then you apply for a clinical trial, and in that clinical trial is where you're going to put it in a human clinical trial or animal clinical trial, I guess would be where that is. That's another late stage preclinical. Um, then you make sure it's safe from that. You get more data. And then with that data in hand, you're allowed to kind of present your case and and begin to use it in humans. And that's considered the clinical trial phase one. And the purpose of that clinical trial phase one is really you're looking at safety. You know, if someone takes this, do they grow an extra arm or something like that, right? You're, you're, you're trying to make sure that we're gonna 
you know, in, clinical trials can take, you know, have thousands of people in them or tens of thousands of people, depending on what it is. So you want to make sure that you're not exposing the participants in your in your large clinical trial to undue hazards, or even your small clinical trial, really, but undue hazards that could have been identified earlier um, if you'd just done a little bit more more research. So that that can take, you know, that that preclinical up to that human clinical phase one in a typical environment can easily take five years to complete before you have enough data that lets you move forward um, to a to a phase one. So you know it, it's you know it is astounding that we were able to generate a series of vaccines so um, from the different companies from from lots of different companies uh, in such a short amount of time. That that actually is is pretty good and, and speaks to the effort of of researchers, the high effort of researchers. Um, and so, you completed the phase one trial on Kinder. So yeah, so our phase one clinical trial is over now. We we completed it in in um, actually end of last year, twenty two, in um, New Zealand. Um, we got excellent, well, what I would consider excellent data for it. Again, um, we had, uh, you know, no serious adverse events um, attributed to, to the, to the vaccine. Um, and we did get a little bit of, of uh, efficacy data that, again, it's not the purpose of, of the clinical, of a phase one clinical trial, but we were able to get a little bit of the, of the, the efficacy data. And it, it actually is very promising as a, um, as a, you know, a, a, what we would just call a, a preventive, you know, preventing people from from getting COVID, but also um, in those that uh, that did have it, we had no um, those that did come down with COVID um, had no, you know, serious hospitalizations or serious events, uh, and and rumor, you know, rumor has it, I guess, from talking to the clinical staff, that some of them didn't even know they had COVID. Part of our testing, part of our clinical trial was we tested each patient every every visit, so they didn't even uh, they showed no symptoms or, or or indications of any sort. Um, it was a surprise to them that they they actually had COVID. So, <laughs> so which which really, when you think about it, is kind of what you, if you're going to get it, that's what you want. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, can, about how many people were in the phase one trial? So we, so what we did was we did a, I can just, I'll describe the trial. It was about 45 people. We had to do a dose escalation. So in many infectious disease things, right, you want to try a placebo group, but when you, when there's a pandemic going on, you have ethical considerations also. And so you want to make sure, you know, you can't not vaccinate people. Right? That's, that would, ethically, that doesn't sit well. So what we did was considered a dose escalation. So we went to, to, to you know, one cohort and a cohort is just a subgroup within the clinical participant population. We started with a small dose, made sure they were okay. Then we went to a bigger dose, made sure they were okay. And then we went to the to an even bigger dose. And what we're trying to do there is figure out based on the dosage level, are there, you know, is there a maximum dose that people can tolerate? Is there a minimum dose where we don't see any, any activity? And what we saw through that was we, we were able to generate the desired um, desired clinical effects, so the desired we were able to generate antibodies across all those dosage levels, which was you know awesome awesome data. 
Um, and that informs us for what we need to do next in our phase two and phase three, where we need to look. And, and you know, these clinical trials, they run, so for a vaccine clinical trial, it usually runs for about a year, so 12 months. Our actual dosing, we used a very similar schedule to what, what all the other uh, in, even injectable people were using, which is a, um, a prime. So you take one, one quaff of this. I can describe that if you want. And then you just, yeah, yeah, in, sure. in, in a week, you take another, another quote. So as an oral vaccine, um, you know, you, like we said, it's oral mucosal. So that means that you ingest it. So you, it's a liquid suspension and it just comes in a little simple little bottle. Um, and effectively you unscrew the cap. It's about 10 mils of liquid and we call it the swish and swallow. So you, you open it and then pour it in your mouth or drink it back, toss it back in your mouth, swish it around, and then just swallow the entire, entire amount. And that, that, uh, that completes your, your vaccination. It's much more pleasant, um, than getting, you know, getting a, a needle in the arm or, or wherever. Um, and that's, that's actually the source of why we call it kinder. It's a kinder way to vaccinate. Um, oh, okay. I was wondering where kinder came yeah, from. That's where that comes from. <laughs> okay. Not bad, not bad for a bunch of scientists, huh? <laughs> no, it's good. It's, 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 it's more creative than what I see coming from like biotech and pharma in general. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Got it. Thanks. Yeah. And then a lot of people, there, there's some market, you know, there's some cool things that we're doing with the, um, mm -hmm. the, the logo to get, you know, to the marketing side of it, but that's really, and what kinder is, is it's a platform of oral, uh, it's our oral platform. So we can actually, we can apply that technology to lots of different viral targets. Uh, you know, okay. So I, the vaccine itself is not called kinder. No, no. Ah, uh, okay. I stand correct. I think I said in the beginning of the podcast that the, the platform is what is called kinder. Correct. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Right. The actual vaccine that we for the clinical trial is a big long, you know, Cove two OGen one dash blah blah blah. Please work on that name. We will. <laughs> um. Okay. So, so just and just kind of going back, you you did the phase one. You didn't really you didn't find any adverse events that you were, or, you know, safety looked good, basically. Um, yeah, safety looked good. Safety looked good. You didn't look at efficacy, which just means for people, you know, he's tested whether, you know, it stops infection or symptoms that comes later down the road in a bigger trial. Right. So for that, we, so we looked at it, but it wasn't a, like a target out, outcome that we're, you know, basing our, all of our decisions on. So with 45 people, you know, so during this time in Auckland, New Zealand, which is where the study was going on, um, we started in, I want to say September. Um, we started in September, but when the, um, that was for the first wave, the, the first wave of the baseline variant or the baseline uh, COVID was going through. And then about midway through the study, Delta variant hit and the number of cases just spiked up. So a lot of people who thought, you know, nothing happened in New Zealand, um, they got hit pretty hard by the Delta variant. And that was uh, right in the middle of our clinical trial. So all the people that got the, I think we had eight out of that number um, ended up with, with COVID. 
if we took that same population with the the approved vaccines that are around, that we would have expected that number to be closer to uh, to 16, or I think it was closer to 16, um, uh, was what we would have expected uh, to to have contracted COVID out of our clinical trial. So while it wasn't an outcome that we were we were targeting because the the pool was so small, the the numbers that came out had some really good promise for for it being being efficacious. Awesome. And how did you get sorry, my, my dog almost barked there. Um he has a lot to say about vaccines. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how did you get the to Auckland, New Zealand? Oh, we, we so we started it off. We were um again, you know, our our between our companies, we have, uh, you know, a whole 20 people working on this. So, so our ability to move really fast, e even working, you know, night and day, 24 seven um, was just limited. We weren't able to do what the big guys were able to do. So we were a little, uh, it took us longer to get the, the clinical materials ready than we would have liked. And by the time we were ready to initiate the study, or well, while we were looking at locations to initiate the study, we did our forecast and we saw that for this study, we needed to make sure that we had what's called a naive population. So, so a population not exposed to COVID. And the only location we could identify um, that would be considered still, um, that we knew the FDA would at least accept data, the US FDA would accept data from was New Zealand. Um, because they were fairly isolated, had low had low rates of infection at the time, yeah. yeah. And so that gave us a naive population that we could actually got it um, test on. Because what you know, in the course of developing all this, one of the things that we could we we could actually see in some of our tests, we could see when someone was exposed to COVID. So it would cloud the data if if we were you know basing in the U.S. There were so many rates of infection that we just couldn't find the number of participants we need we needed. Um, okay, I want to talk a little bit about durability because we, you know, you know, the, that's been an issue with um, a lot of the approved, approved vaccines that are out there now. Um, you know, everyone thought it would be one and done. And that was kind of like the initial messaging. And that was the hope. But then as data came in that had that messaging had to be tweaked, like now it was get your booster. Um, and I think a lot of people got frustrated by that. Uh, I'm sure they did. Um, but it sounds, do you, do you know, do you have any kind of, um, in terms of, you know, you know, we, we talked about how it wouldn't need the, the freezer to move around and, and, and that relates to st stability. Do you have any um, theories or thoughts on how durability would look for um, this type of vac vaccine, mucosal vaccine? Yeah. Yeah. So in our case, I don't have the data for the other orals or the other mucosals. I, I know ours. So, you know, we're, and again, this is in a small, very small population, so you can't say anything, but ours is looking, you know, much greater than six months. Um, There's a couple of things about durability. There's cross, you know, there's cross, um, what I, uh, I just forgot the, the word for it, but um, cross-strain right. um, protection, right? So you have some of that, but you also, and that, that kind of factors into the durability a little bit, but we have much greater, what we saw was a greater instance of antibodies in our test 
population after six months um, than what was being reported elsewhere. And and again, we're looking at mucosal systems um, versus blood serum systems. So there's a little bit, you know, again, that there you're not comparing apples to apples. Um, but you know, you, you look at the data, and the data indicates that okay, these people were did have, you know, they are different from the normal population after several months. So, you know, we're we're pretty that's another one of those areas where we're pretty um enthusiastic ab about the results of the clinical trial right and um, i don't know if i actually defined the word durability well enough for my listeners is is there like a strict definition of dur durability that there there isn't um okay yeah <laughs> the problem with it because so one of the challenges with developing these vaccines is there isn't an actual, there wasn't known or isn't known, I haven't seen it reported, um, what the actual number of antibody, you know, what your antibody count needs to be in your serum in order to be protected. So there, there isn't something out there like that. They call them correlates, right? So there also aren't known correlates right now for COVID. So, so it's hard for people to say, you know, no, no one would ever I don't think any vaccine manufacturer would ever say you are you are 100% protected against this. No one would say that. But um, there also aren't any correlates that you could say, okay, based on this, you should be able, you, you know, you would be, you know, protected against against um, you 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 would you should not, you should be immune to this. Um, flu has those correlates certain other a lot of the other diseases have correlates that people can can use to gauge your level of of immunity and those didn't exist for for covid now I, I still don't think they're out there yet um right, right that that's one of the challenges with trying to figure out um what the that what the what the need for the booster is in the greater populations and also yeah. how you define is it effective or is it not effective it can be very challenging to do that without these right. correlates. And there's also, you know, the studies that look at like the hybrid immunity, um, right? Naturally acquired and vaccine-induced. Uh, so it just gets, and I get, you know, I guess it would depend on, you know, the individual as well. So correct. It depends on the individual and 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 the strain that you're referring right, to. Strain. You know, to so the yeah. different the different families or the different they all when your when your body is folded, you know, when you look at these proteins are folded in special ways and and some of those linkages and some of the the way that they interact with each other can be a very small molecular change, but it creates a huge change in conformation or chemical if you look at a chemical surface affinity on the on the proteins, that could be a huge change. And um it's just very complex, <laughs> to, very complex to, to try yeah. to figure that stuff out. And there's a lot of discussion in the scientific community as to what, what, what certain pieces of data actually mean. Hmm, and, and in mucosal vaccines, that's one of the things that makes developing a mucosal vaccine very challenging. Um, and even to get it commercialized because the regulatory systems are set up really for serum-based vaccines. So a lot of the data that they're requesting and, and things like that are, are they're, they're not, they don't necessarily correlate well with a mucosal vaccine. 
so there is a lot of of work that we all have to have to do industry-wide to kind of start getting this new these new class of vaccines in because i think mucosal vaccines are you know one of the they're the future um no one likes getting stabbed with a needle i, I can't think of anyone who does no i mean i mean there's it's a fear it's a legitimate fear um, right needleless i mean i i hate getting stabbed with a needle um why it is kept i am scared to death of needles so i <laughs> i did i do have two tattoos or three but like that so i don't know maybe now i don't like getting needles but at one point i guess i did, it didn't really bother me but um i i wanted to um go back to you know a lot of people were also upset about um well they felt kind of um duped because people were saying oh it, it's going to stop transmission and 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 i know you know when we look at the the clinical trials that wasn't what was measured that wasn't what was being studied in terms of the outcome but people still expected it and then i think the scientific communication sort of um propelled that message that you weren't going to be able to transmit and and, and I don't, and I, I don't think people really ever thought about that. Um, you know, when we thought about vaccines before, it was like this whole environment of COVID made us, made everybody think of that. You know, like what really is the purpose of a vaccine, and what are you testing, and when? Right, right. And and I don't know. Do you, for your reader or for your listeners, right? The purpose of a vaccine really is to lessen the critical disease, or we'll say acute disease, if you get the get the, the disease the illness so you don't end up in a hospital um you might still have it but you're not you're it's, it's not um debilitating or or you're not in in serious distress um that's the purpose of the vaccine so i i think this and this your question is exactly what spawned a lot of the where a lot of the mucosal discussions are so what what you have there is that in general the phenomenon is called uh we'll say nasal shedding, right? The idea being the for a respiratory disease, the route of entry is your, your nose, your eyes, nose, ears, throat. Um, and so the vaccine particle, or the, sorry, the virus particle comes in, takes root and tries to invade your body from those, from those spots. So it's replicating within in those places. And you have antibodies in there. And on a mucosal vaccine, it's called a mucosal vaccine because its primary function is triggering the antibodies in your nose, mouth, and throat. It, to re that's really where the action is and where, where your body's been trained to kind of recognize these invaders. So there's some data out there that shows that in, when you have a strong mucosal response, this nasal shedding, so the, the virus that you're breathing out every time you exhale you know in a plume or a cloud around you is a lot lower than if you've than if you just had a serum based um kind of kind of response because hmm. on a serum based vaccine right you're waiting for the for the uh virus to invade through your mucosal system take root get into your bloodstream then your body can start can start really that's where the strong response is in your bloodstream so it's keeping you from getting really sick but you still have all these virus particles in your nose and 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 mouth and and this isn't to say that serum based vaccines don't produce mucosal antibodies 
what what I'm saying is mucosal vaccines have are designed to produce a much stronger mucosal response than serum-based vaccines. That's their primary, that's what makes them so powerful and their ability to, to pr protect us. Which makes sense. You're, you're stopping the invader at the front door, so to speak. Correct. And, and that's one of the discussions is, so if, if it's kind of one of those, if you have a virus in your nose, but it hasn't made it into your blood, are you infected? <laughs> that's that's one of those right sure questions that's going on out there right now sure we're, we're but so the, yeah but mucosal vaccines have been shown to reduce that that nasal shedding and that nasal shedding then reduces the spread to other or right. that you know that reduction in nasal shedding then therefore reduces the spread to other to other uh individuals and into your environment and and that's you know yet another reason why I think, you know, mucosal vaccines are probably the future of, of vaccines, especially respiratory types. Right, right. Well, it sounds that way. Um, as I listen to you, in terms of scalability, access, um, uh, not having to worry about needles, um, just seems like a, a user friend, kinder, like it's like a kinder, kinder route of delivery. Um so are some countries using them now? Is, did I imagine, is China doing something? Yeah, China has a, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of cool. So they have a, it's almost like a nebulizer. And okay. you, you kind of activate this, this thing. And then you put a mask over your nose and you inhale that mist. Um, and and they, I think they were reporting, you know, good results and, and, I think it's being used. Um, I think with the, uh, it's hard to get people to go in and to put a mask over their face and inhale something. Yeah, that, that's an extra step that people. You know, right. Yeah, you wouldn't want. I to mean, yeah. yeah, I, I, I think it would work for some markets, um, but, and again, it's better than nothing. But, um, but again, that's that's one of the. You know that, that that's that's a method that they've they've gone with, and it, it you know it, it it sounds like it's it does provide some some efficacy, um, but I don't think it's um, it's there quite yet. I think in the U.S. we have um, there's a couple if you're you know familiar with flu mist and things like that that are similar kind of kind of things where you inhale it in your you know through your nose. One of the challenges with that though is it, it can be it doesn't always stay where it's supposed to be and it, they may not be as effective, but again, we have to look at all the data and I think they're going there. A lot of them are going through their clinical trials now also. Awesome. I, well, this was really interesting. One last question for you. Um, I don't, one clock in my apartment is 10 minutes ahead of the other. So I, if I went over, I'm sorry. Um, oh, no worries. But um, this is really interesting and you did a really great job um, explaining the technology and breaking it down for us. And I appreciate that. Um, where, where, uh, are you at? Like, what, what is your, the next step? Um, that would be one question. And then if folks want to uh, look you up or check you out, how will they do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, our next step is, um, we're compiling, we're writing the final report for the clinical phase one, human clinical phase one. And now we want to move to a clinical phase two slash three, where we, test you know thousands of people so that is that takes a lot 
uh, of money. <laughs> so we're trying to raise money to do that clinical phase two, three, um, to keep the, the platform moving forward and also start collaborating with with some other people on different other viruses that are out there that we that this technology is can be applied to. Um, that's the next step. So really it's just raising the funds so that we can proceed with a phase two and three. If okay. you'd like to, uh, to, 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 to take part or get in touch with me, it's um, Kyle Flanagan, uh, or we'll say info, Kyle Flanagan at US Specialty Formulations. And you can hit me at info at ussfgmp.com. Um, and our website is www.ussfgmp.com. All right. Well, I will. I'll send all the investors I know because uh, oh, we yeah. need. I. I mean, it's so expensive. That's the other thing people don't think about how expensive it is to run. It is a clinical it trial. Is, it's tens of billions of dollars to to yeah. run a phase two or phase three. Right. And so that's why we always see the big guys in the game. You know. Exactly. That's exactly why you always see the big guys. In the game. <laughs> I know. So I'm like, we need to have. You know, it would be nice to mix it up and get you know these smaller companies and have more people just. Yeah, it'd be better for everything. It would. It really would be. Oh yeah, and even even not. You know, the the phase one is millions of dollars. Yeah. Just our just our simple little one, and we made our own materials for it. So can yeah, you imagine I read it. You had it's to funny pay that yourself. Someone else to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, hey, um, I wish you luck with this. I think it's really interesting. Um, and um, uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come on and, and talk about it. I really appreciate oh, it. No problem. Thank you. And you you asked. Pretty you, really good question. So happy to always chat. If you have any other, definitely. Questions. I love all, like I said, all things science. I love so. Yeah, no, you you're, you were great at the podcast too. So um, I I appreciate that. So yeah, if there's any other topics or whatever, um, I'll follow up via email for sure too. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> okay, Kyle. All enjoy right. the rest of your day there. You too. Okay. Bye bye. All right, everybody, thanks so much for joining in to this podcast. If you liked it, please consider subscribing and or sharing. If you have feedback or ideas for future episodes, uh, you can let me know through my website, bloomingwellness.com, where I also blog. Um, but keep in mind that there's also some like advertisement blogs on there that are usually terrible. I don't write those, but um, they help fund my dog's treat habit so all the ones i write i think are clearly labeled i hope um i write a lot about health communications and psycoms related to public health stuff so check it out um okay and now it's quote time as i end every episode with a quote that may or may not be related to the episode um this quote is from my dad a man who doesn't talk much at all but when he does talk, he usually says something witty. Um, and I thought this could relate to the current climate of online discourse. So here it is. Never take for granted that people understand you. Never take for granted that people understand you. That's it. I'll leave you with that. All right, guys. See you here next time. Bye-bye.